Welcome to the Public Morality. As Thomas Paine wrote in Common Sense, a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right. Paine's words explain how norm erosion in the nation's public morality can become the acceptable practice. Given the accusations of norm erosion during the administration of President Donald Trump, it should come as no surprise that we will be facing similar accusations as his presidency comes to an end. Unless there is a tectonic shift in America's public plates, Joe Biden will become the 46th president of the United States. President Donald Trump has been unwilling to acknowledge Biden as his successor, prompting a number of Hail Mary legal maneuvers that most legal experts, regardless of party, view as frivolous. But the failure to begin the peaceful transfer of power, a hallmark of the American narrative, could have logistical as well as national security implications. Joining me to discuss these implications is Dr. Elaine Kmart. Dr. Kmart is a senior fellow in the Governance Studies Program as well as director of the Center for Effective Public Management at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Elaine Kmart, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here, Byron. Uh, I want to begin uh, by just getting your thoughts on the election itself. W- were you surprised uh, by the results, and uh, what were some of your takeaways? Um, look, like most Democrats, I was influenced by the bigger polls, right? And the bigger polls showed a much bigger margin for Biden in some of the swing states. Now, as I look back, if you were to look at the average of the polls, which is, of course, much more reliable, um, the average of the polls showed it to be a close race, Um, but frankly, not quite as close as it was. Um, I'm amazed at how the Trump vote really did turn out in huge numbers on Election Day itself just as Trump was urging them to do. So I, I'm, I was a little surprised at the, how narrow some of these states were. Uh, but it, uh, Biden did win, and the win appears to be solid, and it has taken you know, more than a week to sort of see that. But his numbers keep going up, and it looks like both in the popular vote and the electoral vote, it's a respectable um, win, even though it's not quite as big as a lot of Democrats thought maybe it would be. Now, now um, on the heels of that victory, uh, explain why the peaceful transference of power is crucial to our Democratic Republic and how a delay could threaten that notion. Well, okay, that's a great question. And let me take it in three parts, okay? There's three parts to a transition. One is the literally $6.3 million goes to office space, telephones, computers, and salaries for the new transition team. Well, that's pretty irrelevant in this day and age since nobody's going to offices. And I expect Joe Biden might be doing a lot of his interviewing of cabinet members on Zoom calls. Uh, Forget the office, right? Um, So that part doesn't matter so much. The next part are what are called agency uh, review teams or agency landing teams, where the the president-elect is allowed to send people into the agencies to get briefed, 
not by the Trump employees, that's a misconception, but by the career civil servants. Now, that's very important for them to get a sense of what's happening in those agencies. On the domestic side, um, not not having access to the agencies, especially CDC and FDA, the agencies, you know, most charged with fighting the pandemic, is a serious problem, but not a catastrophic problem, simply because there's a lot of public data anyway. There's a lot of information at the state level. We've been living with this. We know a lot about it. And Biden has a terrific team put together to um, to deal with this. Where the real serious part of this comes is on the foreign policy side and the national security side, because the information being held by the Defense Department, the State Department, CIA, most of that is not public knowledge. And in fact, if something bad out there is brewing, uh, Joe Biden as president-elect and his potential national security team needs to know about it. We had this problem before in 2000 when the election dragged on and on because of Florida and the transition didn't start until December. It was a truncated transition. And the Clinton people never managed to fully convey to the Bush people what they saw happening among Islamic radicals, particularly Osama bin Laden. And a lot of people look back to that transition and say, you know, things were probably missed there that might not have been missed if they'd had a longer um, and easier transition. And in fact, the Bush administration themselves then passed a new law making sure that the president's national security team got expedited clearances so that right away, they could start delving into the secrets and, and the problems around the world. Um, and the Bush to, to Obama transition was one of the best transitions that we've ever seen. So this is the, the most serious part of this delay, the, this temper tantrum that the president is having um, in the White House. The most serious part of it is our... Uh, national security. And he has, he in the re- recent days, several more Republican senators have come out and said, hey, you've got to let the Biden team start seeing classified information because it's too dangerous not to. On that note, I mean, you, you, you're, you're, you're well versed in this area. Talk about, even though Joe Biden has a wealth of experience, and especially in matters of foreign policy, Talk about just being out of the loop, not being in the White House for four years, how that makes a big difference on how the world changes. Oh, it it does enormously. Um, It just, you know, now when um, when Bush took over from Clinton, the Republicans had been out of the loop for eight years. So they their secret information, right, was about a very different world. In those eight years, we saw a dramatic change in the kind of terrorism that the world was experiencing, this religiously driven um, terrorism focused in in the Islamic, um, in some parts of the Islamic world. So that was a dramatic change that occurred. And the Bush people really didn't get that. Okay, they really didn't get it. Even after they came in, 
they said things like, "Oh, the Clinton administration, they were obsessed with with um middle with the Middle East and with Islamic terrorism. They just didn't they didn't internalize it. Um, being out for only four years is obviously somewhat better. So Joe Biden's last um, classified briefing was only four years ago, not eight years ago. But still, we don't know what threats people are seeing emerge and what has been changing in the world over those four years. And the presumably the national security team in the Trump administration, and of course the career government people in state defense and and in the intelligence community, presumably they know how the picture is changing or has changed, and they need to tell Joe Biden and his team uh, how it's been changing so that they're ready to take over on January 21st. And by the way, it's no skin off anybody's back if for some reason Donald Trump manages to pull a rabbit out of a hat and and win. I mean, it's no skin out of off anybody's back to share this intelligence with a person who was the former vice president of the United States and people who also worked in the government who know a little bit about dealing with classified material, and they're not going to spill the beans or anything like that. So there's no really good reason for the Trump administration to be delaying the takeover when it comes to foreign policy. I guess I'm wondering, because if you think about the myriad times that the president was questioned, he never... Uh, unequivocally stated that he, if he lost, that he would accept the results. So I guess on on, on one side, um, should we be surprised that we're going through this right now? No, we shouldn't. I mean, look, wh- what do we know about Donald Trump? The one thing he hates most in the world are losers, right? You know, whenever he wants to insult somebody, he thinks up some nasty name for them and he calls them a loser. The New York Times is a loser. CNN is a loser. John McCain was a loser because he, um, you know, got shot down in Vietnam. I mean, this is the, this is absolutely at the core of Donald Trump's psyche. And so when he himself becomes a loser, um, we could anticipate that he was going to have a very bad reaction to it, and it's going to take him a while to get his head around this. Now, people apparently are telling him, hey, it's over. Um, you can't win. Um, and he's you noticed that he's been um, not been seen for several days other than to go to Arlington Cemetery on uh, Veterans Day. But um, so it's going to take him a while just because of the psychology of the man. Are you concerned that under the conditions you just outlined that uh, President Trump could get into some, for lack of a better word, some some mischief that could that could be harmful to the Biden administration? It's the the only place he could do that would be in international affairs. Okay, he can't. uh, The regulatory process takes too long. He doesn't have enough time to change big regulations. He's obviously not going to get any legislation through the Congress um, before he leaves. The only the only thing possibly would be a very big bipartisan COVID relief deal, which you know, which frankly I think that. Given the way things are, it would have it would be so bipartisan that even if he decided for some reason to veto it, um, there'd be enough votes for an o- veto override. 
Um, so I, he can't, and certainly he's not getting any new legislation through Congress other than, you know, we love Santa Claus or something like that. I mean, <laughs> you know, he ain't passing anything. So on the domestic front, there's very little that he can do. Um, on the foreign policy side, the question is how much do other nations understand the nature of this man and the nature of the American government, where there's a lot of checks on his behavior. So that is that is some place where we worry, just because the president himself has so much latitude in foreign affairs. On the other hand, he's been around for four years. Um, the rest of the world has seen the same very mercurial, sometimes irrational behavior from this man. So I'm not terribly worried that he will do something that's destabilizing or or that leaves a huge problem for Biden. Um, You know, look, he's already leaving a huge problem for Biden, which is to rebuild our relationships around the world and become a leader in the world again. Um, So he's already leaving him plenty to do. I'm not sure that he can add to that burden in the next two months. As you give me the last sentence, I was just thinking, you know, how quickly we forget that uh, uh, presidents at one time in the 20th century actually were sworn in in March. So this delay could have been even longer than it is. Than yeah. It, <laughs> of course, in those days, part of the reason was it took a darn long time to get to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Elaine K. Mark. Dr. K. Mark is a senior fellow at, in the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. She is the author of several books, and she is my unofficial go-to person when I need a better understanding of what's going on in our public morality. Uh, so you didn't know you you didn't know you had that title around here, did you? I didn't. I didn't <laughs> know I had it, but I'm happy to have it and honored for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've I've been also hearing uh, about this that this behavior uh, that the president is is currently exhibiting could. Uh, affect in some way the Republican label going forward. But norm erosion seems to me as something that only applies to one's opposition. So um, I don't see Republicans paying a price for other other Republicans for this norm erosion. Um, I don't see these shenanigans pushing any, having any pushback for Republicans. Do you? No, I'll tell you, that is the the most disappointing thing about everything we've been through with Donald Trump is how timid the other Republican leaders have been around him. Now, from time to time, particularly in foreign affairs, they have stopped him from doing what he wanted to do. We still have Russian sanctions. He threatened to veto it in 2017, but they passed anyway by veto-proof margins. So and he has been he has been stopped in places like Syria. Um, a lot of his his policies have been blocked by Republicans in the Senate. Um, but in terms of the overall, you know, conduct of his presidency, the Republicans, the, the most critical they've been is to sort of say nothing and look kind of embarrassed. Um, and some of them, of course, have gone right along with him, rah, 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 worried about their own primaries and worried about a Trump base in the Republican Party beating them in a primary. So uh, he's had remarkably few checks on his behavior. Uh, frankly, you can argue that 
if in fact the Republican Party had been more stern with him, um, perhaps he wouldn't have gone as far afield as he went in his presidency, uh, particularly on COVID. And, you know, he might have had a better election outcome. But he he doesn't listen to anybody. And the Republican Party, by and large, has been afraid to speak truth to power, which is really very, very sad, especially because, after all, the Congress is a separate branch of the government. You know, I'm uh, thinking back and listening to your answer. I mean, this is the very thing that seems to me James Madison was concerned about in Federalist 10, that we have these, these these factions that are sort of putting their personal interests above the nation's interests. Well, that's right. And that's what they that's what they are doing. I mean, that's what the Republican Party has been doing. And it's to their I mean, well, I was going to say it's to their detriment, although, frankly, they didn't do badly in the election. I mean, they ironically, um, they actually picked up some seats in the House, and they lost some in the Senate. And of course, all eyes now look to Georgia to see what's going to happen there, because the Senate hangs in the balance, depending on those two Georgia seats. But the Republican, uh, but the Republican Party um, is going to have to figure out what it does with Trumpism, which, after all, is is very, very divisive. Um, as you pointed out in this great article you wrote, it is it is really got deep roots with white supremacy. Um, you know, it's got they've got to figure out how to deal with this um, internally because it is it eventually it's going to hurt them and it continually hurts the country. Stay, staying with that theme of factions, I mean, Madison's cure, obviously, was that thing called the Constitution. Um, but if the Constitution was designed to control these factions, and we've sort of gone beyond that, um, where do we go now? Well, I think we got to go back to the American people. And we've got to, we've got to get to a, situa- to a place where voters don't reward this kind of behavior. Now, the only, as, as disappointing as the Republican Party has been in terms of uh, standing up to Trump, there are some bright spots. One of them is that if you look at an age breakdown of the uh, voters in this past election, um, Trumpism is not working with younger voters. And we're looking at 40 and, and younger. The youngest voters are the most opposed to Trump. The second youngest group um, also opposed to Trump, but not by not quite as much. And the other age groups are basically split. So one way of looking at this, which is consistent with our demographic changes, is that Trumpism should die out as the younger generations take over in political power and and in the electorate. And and the reason for that is very simple. The millennial generation, so people who are now in their sort of mid-30s, okay, and younger, that mid-30s is kind of the oldest, the upper age of that. Um, They are the most diverse generation in American history. They're about 40% of color. African Americans, Asians, Indian Americans, Latinos of of all different kinds. So so that generation is in fact distinct and different. And in fact, if you if you look at what some of the Trump supporters say about their politics, they say 
this isn't my country anymore. I get I get uh, emails whenever I publish something or I'm on a radio show like yours from people saying to me, um, this isn't my country. My country is white and Christian. Uh, and they're, they'll, they'll say it. They'll say, my country is white. And, and, you know, of, and then when you say, well, wait, they're all immigrants, they say, yeah, but they're European immigrants, not immigrants from Africa or um, Asia or Latin America or, you know, some other place. So um, there is a very, very strong um, sense that is based in reality that America is changing. Its color is changing. Um, now, what I think these people missed is that just because its color is changing doesn't mean that America is changing, because we're very good at making everybody, no matter where they came from, into Americans. Um, but that that deep-seated racism and paranoia is, I think, at the root of a lot of the uh, politics we see today. And it should go away, frankly, as the generations, generations change. You know, you know, Dr. Kmart, you know, I guess one of the things that, that uh, and these are, these are my thoughts that concerns me, there was once a belief that divided government and sh- was sort of inoculated us from those type of factions that I was talking about earlier. But, but now governing only happens when one party controls the White House and both chambers of commerce, com- I mean Congress, and I'm wondering how can that, if we can only move forward by having one party control everything, how is that in the overall best interest of the country? Well, I, I, you're right. I mean, that is very bad. And the polarization that followed the presidential races in Congress has been very destructive. Um, there, There is a slight possibility, and I will call it a slight possibility, that with a narrow, a narrow majority in the Senate, that there will be a handful of senators, and these are happen to be the four senators who have already congratulated Joe Biden. So they're Murkowski from Alaska, Collins from Maine, Romney from Utah, and Ben Sass from Nebraska. These four senators who have bucked the Republican Party before, Romney was the only one to vote for impeaching Trump, Um, Those four senators carefully handled might, in fact, on some key issues, be able to create a majority with the Democrats in the Congress. Um, We saw that there was a little bit of that early in 2017 when uh, John McCain, now now late John McCain, uh, John McCain and Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins uh, voted to preserve Obamacare. Okay, so it's so. The probabilities of that go up for two reasons. One is the Republican majority in the Senate is not as big as it was. And the second reason is that Joe Biden himself is a creature of the Senate, and he is very good at Senate politics and making coalitions, cutting deals. And, you know, we first of all, Donald Trump was terrible at this. Donald Trump never a very, very rarely went to the senator Senate. You never heard Donald Trump on the phone lobbying senators. I mean, you know, he just couldn't do it at all. Um, but even Obama and Bush before him were not very good at this. 
Obama only had four years in the Senate before he ran for president, uh, so he wasn't, you know, a creature of the Senate. Um, George Bush had not never been in the House or the Senate. Um, so even so, the the whole idea of having a president who can ma- negotiate with the other branch is pretty foreign. There's the whole generation that never saw a president like that. Right. Because Bush wasn't very good at it. Obama wasn't very good at it. And Trump was just downright awful at it. I mean, couldn't couldn't do that in either party. So we're having now for the first time a president closer to the to the famous Lyndon Johnson, um, who can, in fact, perhaps make some of these uh, deals across the aisle. And if that happens, we'll get things done. I was just about to say you. You just. I was about to say when you were giving your answer. You were making a wonderful case for the return of Lyndon Johnson. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, Lyndon Johnson. Let's face it. Lyndon Johnson. You know, he had such a landslide in '64 that he never really had to. Uh, you know, he. he it was kind of easy for him. Although, uh, let's face it. What did he do in '65, '65, and '66? He did all the landmark civil rights legislation. Right. So uh, Johnson got that done. He saw his opportunity, got that done. Johnson's doing in was, you know, undoing was in foreign policy, of course, with Vietnam. But, uh, yeah, he was a great deal maker. Um, Several years ago, four to be exact, um, you wrote a book, Why Presidents Fail. And um, correct me if I have your thesis wrong, but I understood your thesis to be that the modern presidency has paid more attention to communicating and not enough on actual governing. Um, That's right. With that said, couldn't we expand your thesis beyond the presidency and it's sort of become part uh, of American politics, central in in some regards? I I think you could. I think you could. Um, The, the, you know, if you look at the um, House right now, um, you know, some of the stars in the House, like AOC, who, who's, a, who's a very talented young woman. But the fact of the matter is that she, what she is talented at is Instagram and Twitter and communicating, and she's awfully good at it. But we have not seen AOC marshal a piece of legislation through through the House, right? That's that's a skill. That's a skill that I, I actually think she's smart enough that she'll she'll learn it. But you know, I'm hoping for her sake that she doesn't get she doesn't follow this shiny ball of mm-hmm. communications and being a Twitter star and let it keep her from doing the serious work of legislating, which is frankly not very glamorous. I mean, you just don't get on TV all the time. You don't get a million tweets following you because you just managed to get a compromise out of committee. You know, the the stuff of government is is pretty darn boring and and it doesn't get you headlines. But we need people who will concentrate on that and not be constantly trying to be a cable TV star or a Twitter star or an Instagram star or whatever the latest thing is. I'm, I'm not I'm not comparing her to this individual, but I recall when the most uh, popular mm-hmm. face in the Democratic House was Anthony Weiner. 
Yeah, yes, right. Exactly. For all the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but but even when he, even before he got in trouble, you know, he was the face. He it was his sound bites that we heard uh when he was attacking, you know, the opposition, but we don't there's not a lot of legislation to your point that bears his name. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. Now, now, now beyond I'm about to engage in a shameless plug for this program. I want, I, want, I want to talk about our public morality. Yeah. If the ethos of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and I would throw in the Emancipation Proclamation are secondary considerations, how long can we continue? Oh, we can't continue very long with the disruption of norms. We really can't. I mean, because it's and, – and what we can't continue to do – and this is controversial, but I will make this case here. We cannot continue to let the political parties nominate people who are unfit for office. And the and we've done that by basically having the political parties give up their vetting role for presidential candidates and leave it all to primary voters. Now, primary voters have a big role, obviously, but frankly, they can be swayed, as can any group of voters, by demagogues. Um, if you have more of a role of the political parties, including the elected officials, in the nomination process, um, you will not get Donald Trump's. Uh, Donald Trump would never have been nominated in the old-fashioned system without primaries. In fact, if you go back to 2016, a big chunk of the Republican establishment even refused to go to his convention in Cleveland. They didn't want to be associated with the guy. And then, of course, he surprised everybody by, by you know, pulling an inside straight and, and getting into office. So, but, you know, in, in most democracies, political parties form a vetting role. For one simple reason is that the people in the political world tend to actually know the candidates personally, um, as opposed to the voters who only get to know them on TV screens. So people will know, you know, this senator, oh, yeah, he, he gives great speeches, but you know what? He's actually a drunk. Or this person has a very shady business background. Um, or, you know, from, from when they were in private life. I mean, the, these things tend to be known. It, these things were certainly known about Donald Trump, but uh, the Republican Party just stood out of the way and let this happen. And we can't let this happen. Uh, there's a study by two Harvard historians um, called When Democracies Die. Oh, I've had, had him on the show, uh, Daniel Zablat. The, and uh, Dan, yeah, yeah, Daniel Zablat, and what's the other guy's name? Uh, z z z z starts with a Z. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, they make the point that in countries that have managed to not elect demagogues, it's because the political parties had a screening function, and they managed to keep these people out of the leadership positions in their parties. And that is something that it's a hard, this is a hard thing to sell because people automatically think, oh yeah, hey, wait a minute, I want to pick the president. Well, you know, you want to pick the president, but you know, you want somebody in the process who knows something about the individuals as people, as 
know something about their character, know something about their morality. Um, had that been the case, you would not have had a Donald Trump nominated by the Republican Party. And frankly, if we look back on that 2016 field of candidates, Marco Rubio would have handled this um, pandemic much better. Ted Cruz would have handled this pandemic much better. Chris Christie would have handled it better. Yeah, almost, almost everybody on that stage would have handled it better than Trump. And, and, the, and, the, and the book that uh, had fleeted from both of us is How Democracies Die by Stephen Levisky and Daniel Zablock. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for jogging our senior brains. You know, you know, it's funny you say that about the party, about the role of the parties, because as I recall, um, that harkens back to norm erosion that, that, that goes back to 1960 when Jack Kennedy saw the primaries as a way to win the presidency. And that wasn't done before Jack Kennedy in 1960. That's right. Well, but even in 1960, what Jack Kennedy had to do in the primaries was convince the um, party leaders that he could win. He, it was all about him being Catholic. And by the way, we've just elected our second only Catholic president. Um, as a Catholic, I'm sort of proud of that. Right. Um, but <laughs> but um, Jack Kennedy's challenge then was was not really convincing people that he was uh, competent, even though he was young and and knew he he had some experience and knew what he was talking about. His his goal then was to convince the party leaders that he could a Catholic could win in Protestant states. He his wins in the primaries did not give him enough delegates to win the nomination. He they did give him the credibility for the party leaders like in Pennsylvania, in California, in the big states to instruct their delegates to vote for Jack Kennedy. And so even then, it was a slightly different. We don't have the really new system until 1972 and 1976. Now, I know it's commonplace uh, to bemoan um, the lack of civics, but it seems to me that if we collectively do not possess the wherewithal to challenge our own side, I, you know, I'm not saying that the, the people have to switch, but I think some of the normal roads you can be pulled back. If I'm willing to challenge my own sides, go, wait a minute, you've, you've crossed a line that nobody can cross. And if we don't do that, we can't govern. Now, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And I think we've got to criticize our own side. I, I'm, I'm one that that's all for intra-party, um, robust discussions. There, there's one going on in the Democratic Party right now, okay, and it's over the term socialist. Um, so AOC and 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 Bernie Sanders will say, well, Democratic socialists are different. Well, you know, frankly, the term actually has meaning. And it means control of the means of production by the state. That's what it means. And that's what it's been in every country in the world with a socialist country, with the socialist government. We, nobody in the United States thinks that's a good idea, including all the young people who work in the high tech industries and would be appalled if the government got in the way of their software designs for the Internet. Um, this is not what it, it has meaning. 
And so when people try, try to use it and try to redefine it, it just doesn't work. And so the Democrats need to have a big conversation about that because, as we now know from the results in Florida and from interviews and from some exit polls, there's a lot of first-generation Americans who came from socialist countries. And they came to America from socialist countries and, and they said, hey, that's bad. We don't want that. We got out of we got out of whatever country we came from because of that. And we don't want to see we don't want to see it here. No, so, I, mean, I think really, you're absolutely right. The word is baked in. And if I'm from Venezuela and I hear socialism, I'm thinking Hugo Chavez. Yeah, exactly. You're thinking Hugo Chavez. You're saying, phew, I got out of that place. Right. Um so we've got to be, uh, you know, we've got to be more careful about our language, and we have to have a discussion internally about our language. Look at the other one was they they stopped doing it, and and I bear some credit for it because I called everybody on it. But uh, a year or so ago, people were talking about abolishing ICE. ICE is the Border Patrol, yeah. you know, agency, and I was like, well, of course we want to reform ICE because you know we don't want this travesty of parents and children being dragged apart but abolish it are you crazy you want to you want to say that absolutely anybody can come across our borders no we nobody's for that so you know again now people stop using it because clearly the goal is to reform ice and let's face it the very same ice with the very same people under obama did not do the things that donald trump ordered them to do so you know it's it's uh, it's not intrinsic but you know we've got to be careful about our language and we've got to talk about we've got to find words that convey what we mean as opposed to something that sounds kind of dramatic and gets a lot of press attention but frankly is not what anybody means and not what anybody wants well, that, your last answer um, sort of touches on one of the criticisms offered about the Democratic Party is that at times it can be tone deaf. And that's what I'm hearing you say oh, yeah. right now. Yeah, you are so right. I mean, the Democratic Party can be incredibly, incredibly tone deaf. And it's a problem. It costs us elections all the time. Um, the party can be elitist. It can be tone deaf. I mean, the core of the party, let's face it, is in California and New York, um, you know, two places with incomes way above average and with a very liberal social background. Uh, I remember Howard Dean from uh, when he ran for president in 2004 um, from Vermont, but originally from New York City, talking about how one of the Things that had had you know surprised him most running for president, and you being an Alabaman and North Carolinian will will understand this. Um, he said, you know, people up here in the North, we don't talk about religion. Hmm. We don't talk about religion. You know, um, it's it's kind of it, people are sort of embarrassed. You're not supposed to do that. You might upset someone. So people don't talk about their religion, even though plenty of people go to church and plenty of people believe in God. They don't talk about religion. And yet in the South, and I have I was mentioning before we got on air, a, a good friend of mine from Alabama, she she will regularly talk to me about what Jesus told her, how she feels in her heart, what, what she thinks God wants her to do, etc. You may, Northerners may feel that, may pray, but they don't tend to talk about it. 
It's a big cultural difference. Uh, and, you know, there's just a lot of those around the country. Dr. Lane Kmark, Brookings Institution, and, and, and my unofficial go-to person. Thank you for joining me once again on The Public Morality. Well, thank you, Byron, and, and good luck to you and your show. May you grow by leaps and bounds. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.